Hello from Cybrary, and welcome to the show. If you've been enjoying the Cybrary podcast or 401 Access Denied, then make sure to like, follow, and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or review on your platform of choice or emailing us at podcast at cybrary.it. From all of us at Cybrary, thank you and enjoy the show. With companies migrating to cloud environments amidst a continued influx of remote and hybrid workspaces, it's essential to keep your data secure. Nick Lumsden, co-founder and CTO of Tenacity Cloud, helps organizations to improve their foundational AWS cloud security. In a world where you can quickly make software changes, how can you maintain asset visibility and ensure compliance? Listen to Nick's insights on cost-effective cloud security management best practices. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Cybrary Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will Carlson, Senior Director of Content here at Cybrary. And I'm joined today by Nick Lumsden, co-founder and CTO of a really interesting company, Tenacity Cloud, that lives in the cloud security space, particularly around AWS. Nick, thanks for joining me today. Fill in any gaps that I missed for the audience here about who you are and what it is you do and, and who you're involved with. Yeah, absolutely. But thanks so much for having me on the show, first of all. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, you know, really the only thing you need to know about me is I've, I've been in technology for 20-some-odd uh, years and been everything from a software engineer to uh, running, you know, highly secure, highly sensitive uh, infrastructures. And Tenacity is really born out of all the problems I saw uh, that just keep repeating themselves in every technology stack, but that public cloud has actually made it possible to go solve. So uh, Tenacity is, uh, it, it's really, it's a cloud operating platform. It, it provides deep observability into uh, AWS infrastructures to help organizations really get fundamental foundational security right. If you build the rest of your security program on a really solid foundation, you're going to do really well. And if you don't, then you end up in in uh, uh, all kinds of uh, problems, which we'll go into uh, uh, later. But that's that's really what Tenacity is doing: is helping organizations get the foundation really well secured. Yeah, if you don't get that foundation figured out, you're, what you're going to end up in is the news, right? Not not yeah. not for a good product <laughs> release or a launch. <laughs> Unfortunately. Um, so, you know, I know the cloud is seemingly ubiquitous. People are multi-cloud. People have, you know, the COVID has accelerated, I think, some of our movement to the cloud and all that that means. Um, you know, I know a number of organizations that had longer term plans to, to make some of those migrations. And it seems like COVID has, for better or for worse, just accelerated those plans, which I'm sure you and I have both been around the block long enough to know that, um, hurried plans always lead to really phenomenal security, right? <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, as do a number of other things that kind of crop up, like lift and shift tends to be the the hurried plan instead of really thinking about the the problem and in, in how apps need to exist in the cloud, which is which is a very different world, a very different ecosystem. So yes, I would agree. It's it's been accelerating uh, over COVID, and I think it was already accelerating before that, just because there was massive momentum, and and I, and I think that curve has really. Um, has really pushed up. I mean, the number of organizations we see, not, not just making the transition, but growing in the cloud, you know, going from, um, you know, very modest spend to, you know, doubling or tripling their spend just very, very quickly in, in less than a year. That's that's a pretty big jump. That's, that's an all-in 
kind of leap. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll touch in a little bit on some of my opinions about why that spin tends to be creeping up potentially. <laughs> uh, it's not always because it's intentional, right? We'll, we'll get to that as a, as a good follow-on topic. But I wonder, <laughs> you know, kind of here to start, what are some of the things that are unique to the cloud um, that make it potentially risky, different from an on-prem environment? Or what are some of the top risks that you all are seeing that you've seen over your career uh, as organizations are making yeah. this migration to cloud? Why is it of a concern to cybersecurity professionals particularly? Yeah, of, of course. Of course. And there's a number of things we can touch on, but I think the first and most obvious, and I think people just know this intuitively, but until you say it, you know, and state it, uh, uh, you, 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 then you nod your head that the rate of change has just changed dramatically. When we went from hardware to software and software can be changed so frequently, you know, we've gone from uh, the beginning of my career, you might update something once a quarter or once a month. Uh, and that's a pretty normal cycle to make a change. And you, and you actually want to control those cycles. And now, you know, you're making dozens, if not hundreds of changes a day uh, in an environment. And some organizations don't even realize they're doing it, right? There's, there's organizations that are very intentional, of course, because they have ephemeral infrastructure. And, and that's the beauty of the cloud is that you can make those, make those changes in real time. Um, but that, you know, inserts a level of risk because every change is a potential for an engineer to have forgotten something or for something to have been misconfigured or for something that was old or legacy or needed to be retired uh, has suddenly become orphaned or abandoned and is hanging out there as, you know, potential backdoor loophole. So I, I think change is probably the biggest thing. I, I think the second thing that's going on in cloud is Organizations have at their fingertips services and resources they've never been able to have access to because, frankly, of the economics. If you were in a mid-sized organization um, or a small organization, you know, going out and making a million dollar or, or even several hundred thousand dollar purchasing decision took months and months and months to in order to get a new technology in, into your environment. And with the cloud economics, I mean, you have access to literally hundreds of services just from the public cloud providers that you may have no experience with. You may have no expertise on your team. You have no idea how to configure it and secure it and run it properly. And you end up with, with all sorts of issues that, that crop out of that. Yeah, you know, as you're talking about the, you know, the pace of change, I, I, I'm definitely old enough to have been around when the pace of change, you said every quarter was a change. Well, yeah, that might be a code level change, but I'm used to some of these hardware replacement cycles. And when you're gauging workloads, the answer is, well, right. unless you want to buy another server and some additional licensing to put in the environment, we're not going to carry that workload for a couple of years. So, you know, I, I agree that the pace of change is absolutely astronomical. And I've definitely been one of those that's guilty of, I'll, you know what? I need to get in there. This is not working. I'll just change this security group rule. What's the worst that can happen without realizing that, oh no, that's the security group that applies across right. all of those resources. And all of a sudden I just opened up SSH to the public internet for every one of those machines without realizing it. One needed to troubleshoot one. Um, that yes. was a new machine. Yes. It was really yeah. kind of on the down low that nobody knew was there because it was just going to be really quick for testing. But instead of creating a whole new security group, I just lumped it in with the one that was already there because that makes good sense, right? You know, it's it's um, it, the I liken it to been in leadership for a long time. I've, I've had thousands of of employees at this point in my career, and never have I had an employee who was short on work. And, and that is the reality in technology is there's still, what, half a million, a million open jobs in, in IT right now. So folks have more work than they can accomplish. So, of course, what do you do when you're troubleshooting an issue and you can't figure it out and it, it 
you know, you find a way to work around it with permissions or with opening something up so that you can move on to the next work where someone's breathing down your neck. It happens. It happens all the time. It's not infrequent. That is a very common occurrence in cloud operations. Yeah, or that workload's not maximized to run well on that particular architecture. So let's just throw a couple of more server yes. devices at it, right? It's, hey, we handled the utilization problem. We added in a couple of T3 larges. No big deal. Nobody cares. We'll just leave them there <laughs> running 24-7. No problem. Somebody's getting that bill. So Somebody's going to be somebody getting the care. bill. That's an interesting <laughs> one too, right? And I, you know, I think probably what will, what, what, Listeners will find in all of this, and maybe you can correct me if you think I'm wrong here, but I think so much of what we're going to talk about today really comes back down to oversight. Oversight and visibility. Would you say that's a general theme here that, that you think uh, you know, the industry really needs to solve, and particularly that tenacity is kind of focusing in on and, and pointing and poking a finger at on a regular basis? 100%, 100%. If I could go back in time, if I could go 25 years ago into the infrastructures that I built throughout my career and, and get one thing, it would be complete transparency into what's going on in the environment. And that is the issue that public cloud has made solvable. So we can now do that. Yes. Yeah, and you know, I think it's interesting too that the pattern previously was you had a, a really small crackpot team of infrastructure folks that worked internal. The infrastructure was all internal, and if you needed something on that mm -hmm. on that machine, those machines, you had to go ask and hope they would say yes. Um, mm -hmm. That worked okay for then until you have this other alternative that's really easy to spin up. All you have to do is give a company credit card, and then you're off to the races, and nobody's any the wiser. Um, so I agree with you. I mean, I totally see it from, from my seat. And as I've seen things grow and people have moved and organizations have moved to the cloud, um, you know, we talk about shadow IT a lot. So forget that. Talk about shadow infrastructure completely, you know, can get really out of hand knowing where your data at and what all is going on when we have things like the cloud. So that visibility and oversight becomes a really big problem that, you know, I think, frankly, we didn't really have to deal with as an industry because by design, we already had it kind of under wraps. Um, but the, the bull has been set loose in the China shop, as it were, for now, I think. Um, so, you know, kind of walk me through that. So if I, if I have a way, it, it's not just visibility, right? It's not just visibility to the resources that are there. Um, you know, we've all heard in the news about the, the storied S3 bucket that has a security misconfiguration and no engineer sets out on the day and goes, you know what? I think I'll expose all tens of thousands of our customers PII to the internet because I need to forget to not check that box or I'm troubleshooting on an S3 bucket. So it's not just, I mean, it, it isn't just about knowing that those resources are there from a, a workloads perspective, but it's also about the configurations of them too, correct? It absolutely is. It really is. It's all about the configuration. And, and, and part of what gets lost is that it's easy to spin up an S3 bucket. So it's also, you know, it becomes easy to spin up hundreds of S3 buckets. And we find, you know, when, when users uh, install the platform and, and take their first look at the data, um, in almost 100% of the cases, there's some resource completely unexpected from them that's publicly accessible. Just, you know, whether it has sensitive data or not on it, that's that's another story, but but unintended publicly accessible. And so you might end up with, you know, RDS or S3 or or you know something to that effect that's that's open to the world. And there is some nuance to the configuration where um, you know, there may be a reason for something to be publicly accessible. You're you're maybe it's content distribution, et cetera. And there's you 
you know, you want to monitor those and know mm -hmm. that those exist, but there's uh, other components. Somebody may have just scraped that Terraform code and pasted it into your internal infrastructure. And now they're still creating those buckets publicly accessible. And that's, you know, that, let's, let's face it. That's actually how coding works is we reuse and copy as much as we can from what we've done previously to, you know, do what we need to do internally. And someone may not know that, that they've just created a, a massive vulnerability, but also say that there's a lot of nuance in configuration where it's not as black and white as there's public access and not public access. There are, uh, you know, a hundred variations of how you can write policies such that you can make objects public, even though the bucket itself is in public, things mm -hmm. like that. So you, you have to watch out for that. You have to scan for that. And you want to know that that's actually happening in the environment. Um, so you need a tool that lays over top that's actually watching for that to happen and gives you insight into those instances where your configuration may not be uh, what you intended. Yeah, so let's, you know, maybe we'll finish turning the screw here on the 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 fears and the evils of the cloud and then give us a little bit of time to circle mm -hmm. back around and why, you know, what you led with. And I appreciate that, that there is hope, right? So we had some of these problems on on-prem infrastructure and we didn't necessarily have a great set of tools to solve it other than the people that we had at that point in time. But I, I think, you know, one of the last things here that I've seen and witnessed be a real concern for folks is that we have the cloud step in. It can do all these things. It's really easy to spin up infinite seemingly amounts of infrastructure there are you know by design um you know the infrastructure and the tools that that uh, aws and cloud vendors are putting out are secure and a common you know argument i hear is well they've got a much bigger security team than i do oh, okay i would not argue that point against most organizations but there are still all those security misconfigurations that are possible because again at the end of the day it's a shared security model and you have your responsibilities in the way that you execute and use the tools, which can be done wrong. So we can have an organization that spun up who knows how much infrastructure full of security misconfigurations. And then there's the cost piece of it, which we alluded to earlier today, right? So I know we've all been part of a shop where um, a certain developer says they have to have XYZ by this date and they just need it spun up. And then they push back, well, I can spin it up myself in the cloud so you accommodate them. But before you know it, the entire development team has this laundry list of resources that they need. And oh, by the way, they don't want to wait on the infrastructure team to spin it up. They need you to let them go ahead and spin up what they need as needed. And oh my gosh, if you leave those things running, far be it when the accounting or the finance team gets a hold of some of those bills. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we have seen, uh, well, first of all, you know, the, the the first question is what does cost have to do with security, right? And cost has a lot to do with security in that you can actually look at what's going on inside of the billing structure and understand if something has changed dramatically. And if you didn't change it, what's going on, right? So first, there's insight there. Second is the amount of resources in cloud infrastructures as they age, because they don't age well, um, that become abandoned or orphaned or, or idle, um, it increases dramatically at about the one-year and two-year marks. And identifying those resources and removing them is not just a cost optimization uh, issue. It is a big security issue, especially as you start thinking about, um, you know, having thousands of potential resources like EBS volumes, having storage just hanging out there that has potentially sensitive data for which there is no monitoring and no one's caring for them, no one's maintaining them. Um, you, you know, you want to have your arms around 
around that piece of it. Um, you know, the added benefit is that you are optimizing your cloud spend, which is a big problem. And it is 100% of cloud infrastructures that have a cloud containment and cloud or cloud cost containment and cloud optimization issue. It's just, do you know it or not? Right. And are you optimizing for it? Yeah. And, you know, not to be cynical to the cloud vendors either, because I don't believe they're necessarily out to do this, but I think we, we as professionals in the space need to be willing to follow the money to an extent, right? So as is AWS or Google Cloud going to come knocking on your door and say, I feel like your cloud spend might have gotten a little bit out of hand. You might want to get that reeled back in. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. maybe it's egregious or they feel like something really nefarious is going on. You might get that conversation. But for the most part, they're going to leave you to your own devices. And if that bill blows up, they're happy to go ahead and scoop the money for the resources that you used, even if it was, um, you know, what everybody doesn't want, somebody gets in and starts spinning up a bunch of resources to mine Bitcoin, as it were, um, you know, seemingly we've right. seen here as of late, but um, they're not necessarily incentivized to help you keep your costs low. So that responsibility falls on you. It does. So we have this, you know, this world where there's massive sprawl, not a lot of visibility necessarily baked in, huge costs mm -hmm. Um, potentially uh, racking up. Uh, it's a very flexible and extensible thing, the cloud is, um, where people can spin up whatever they want to spin up. And if you don't know that it's there, if you're not looking for it, you may never know that it's there, um, misconfigured potentially. Um, so outside of uh, tools, I suppose, are there any general techniques or best practices that you could share with the audience of things that they just need to be doing to try to keep their hands sensibly around what it is that they have so that it doesn't get so out of hand? Yeah, I, I, I think so. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's important to have, you know, observability into the environment, but, you know, sans that just just techniques for you know really making sure that you have your arms around the environment i mean first and foremost i would be doing the you know checking the basics because we find this all the time you know nfa enabled for all users you know making sure that your ion policies are set correctly that your admin privileges are actually uh, uh tuned in so that you know you don't create um uh uh you know a god account that that um, unfortunately, when they get compromised, can create all sorts of, of damage. So, you know, those are the basics. But then, you know, there's just the strategies of making sure that you're using uh, AWS organizations correctly, that you're actually using accounts the way they're intended so that you're not putting all your infrastructure in one account, uh, so that you're actually breaking up your, you know, dev and production environments, that you're paying, you know, a lot of attention to what's going on uh, in your dev. Actually, surprisingly, that's where all the issues uh, tend to manifest from a sprawl perspective. Of course, there's security issues in, in production, but uh, we've had, you know, we've had customers who do an install the free trial and find, not kidding, 20,000 resources mm -hmm. spun up by, say, a QA department to do some testing and were just never cleaned up. And so, you know, just that, you know, when they look at it, it's obvious, but, you know, you need to spend some time actually reviewing the environment and, and making sure that, um, uh, that those <coughs> workloads are, are what are intended. I would also say that, um, you know, being diligent about, um, you know, code inspection and understanding what's actually going to push to production, understanding how it's actually supposed to work or permission set up correctly. You know, if you can solve it in the uh, pre-production phase um, and catch it there, that's, that's just really, really important from a, a good security program, a good cloud operations perspective. Uh, try and catch it as early in the pipeline as possible. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think it's interesting. And then that, you know, some of this 
maybe a lot of it, honestly, comes back to just the fundamentals of security and IT professionals that we know we ought to be doing. Um, mm-hmm. But it's interesting to hear you talk about a number of these things. So I think just managing costs, right, to your point, is a really good tip of the hat of our costs grew a lot. Let's ask the question as to why that happened. Nobody seems to know why. Let's go dig in and see what that could be. You can find issues and problems that way, along with a number of other things, to your point of knowing what's going to be there, having that regular code inspection. But it's interesting to me that many of those are post-event kind of research. So something shows up that isn't the way that you expected it. Now you've got to go dig in to see what the story is and do a lot of you know, I may stop short of calling it forensics, but it is a little bit of live forensics, right? So what happened? This is not what I expected it to be, which there's a whole lot that has to happen for that to be true. You, it has to have shown up for, for you to notice it wasn't what it needed to be. You have to be brave enough to say something when you may be the accounting person who may just not care because it's in budget. And it's all after the fact. So how do we, you know, I, I think herein is where we pivot a little bit and talk about some of the hope that we have in the cloud now we can make that more proactive. We can push that earlier to catch some of these things, to catch things before they begin to sprawl, to proactively be looking for security misconfigurations. And that's where a tool like uh, Tenacity would come in. Is that correct? That's exactly right. It's it's being proactive about that foundational security. So it's instead of there being, you know, thousands of gaps in the environment, even in a modest scale environment, there's there's thousands of gaps. And some of those are going to be intentional. They're how the app works. You, you have to have them. But let's say you take, you know, 8,000 potential uh, gaps and you narrow them to the 300 you need in order to run your app. Now you only have 300 things to watch, not 800,000, not 8,000 things making noise. So, you know, getting that right early prevents these, you know, issues that put you on the front page of the Wall Street Journal or, or make you one of the breaking news headlines uh, on, on TV. We, we, you know, it's all about being proactive in that, being able to see resources that become abandoned, you know, near real time, being able to detect anomalies uh, in spending, you know, right away, being able to uh, identify where there's high risk vulnerabilities inside of your environment that you can close today and don't have to worry about those being a gap in the future. That's, that's what's important. Knowing what change actually, actually manifested that. So you can go back and correct the code uh, and, you know, correct your Terraform script so that you don't create that public S3 bucket every time it, it, it publishes. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? So, so many um, industry frameworks, 800-53, PCI, the CIS now 18, previously 20. One of the fundamental things in each and every one of those is know what you've got. You have to have a solid inventory yes. of what you have. And, you know, the cloud can make that simultaneously very, very challenging if you're not looking. And also very, very simple because it's ultimately all there. But without that, you don't know your attack surface, to your point. And again, I I guess I'm just driving on some core cybersecurity concepts here, right? So you have to know what you've got. You have to know your attack surface. You need to know what your baseline is. And I think the cloud makes some of those things more challenging, to your point about the pace of change and how easy it is for somebody to go in and make a change and to have code Mm -hmm. really simply change infrastructure. And if to my point earlier, if you're trying to check up on all of that after the fact, I, I, you know, I'm concerned that as an industry, we're going to constantly be chasing our tail and we've got to find ways to get out ahead of a number of those things. I wanted to dig a little bit on, um, you've got this environment with thousands of resources in it. 
They're all legitimately there. I've done a good job of baselining to make sure that I know what should be coming and going, what the configuration should look like. I'm comparing that against standards that matter to my organization from a compliance perspective. Um, then what? How do I, we, I find, a, well, I find one misconfiguration. It's certainly not going to be one. It's going to be many. Um, but even if I'm doing all those things and I'm looking, how do I prioritize all that work? How do I know where yeah, to start? Absolutely. How do I know that, what's going to have the potentially the biggest impact on my cloud environment? Is it, you know, those machines that QA spun up and didn't clean up? Or is it um, somebody in accounting that thought they would share some documents using an S3 bucket that they didn't understand? And now we've got vendor information out in the wild. How, how do you know which one to focus on and to take a prioritized approach? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So this is where a tool is really important. I mean, you, you have the, you know, the pillars of, of um, you know, doing good cloud management. You got to have AFSA. You got you to have your manifest. You got to know everything that you have and you got to know where it belongs. So that's number one. So having a platform that actually supports that business context a tool that supports that business context to help you do the prioritization. So, um, you know, being able to understand which one actually is finance or accounting and which one's actually your, you know, mission critical, sensitive data, you know, production environment, which one's your dev environment, that's going to help you prioritize. Being able to filter down to that level, being able to understand that business context too, is, you know, again, seeing thousands, people give up, um, you know, oh gosh, I, you know, how am I actually going to address all these? Well, when you can actually start slicing the data down, you know, really turning the uh, security misconfiguration asset manifest, you know, compliance and regulatory obligation problem, take that all together and turn that into a massive data analytics problem. And then let's actually analyze the data, understand what our external exposures are. Let's go take the high vulnerabilities in our most important business applications. And let's just address those first. When you can start slicing the data that way, it really does empower the team to go solve these problems uh, in you know, little chunks at a time. Um, and it, you know, we, we, I've certainly found throughout my career, when you offer up a whole bunch of problem, whether it's noise or legit problem, teams will hesitate they get stuck in analysis paralysis they don't know where to go first but if you can actually deliver to them an experience where uh, they can very easily move to well what should i take care of immediately right now um you know you get action right away you you actually mitigate the most risk in that first action you're not going to actually uh, uh, you actually end up waiting longer uh, uh, with higher risk if you don't have tools to support, you know, getting to those those first priority issues. And that's, you know, we approach it from a from a big data problem. It's, it's really a data analytics problem. How do we slice this data up? Yeah, it's really interesting. I know a number of organizations, like you, you see this crop up with pen tests, right? Like they, they're concerned about discoverability and plausible deniability in a lot of cases. And they think that, you know, the, the least that we put, the, the less that we put out there, the more liability that we have. And I just, it's, it's the, the bury your head in the sand approach to a, a lot of, of security, right? I don't think any security team yeah. wants to be snowed under with a bunch of recommendations that a team just drops on your desk and leaves and says, hey, we did our part. Thanks. Have a good time. We'll be back next year to do the same thing over again. I don't think anybody's wanting that. But the visibility, to your point, I, I think for me and where you know, cybersecurity is at as an industry, prioritization is just such a big part of what it is that we do. Because you just can't secure everything from everybody. Um, that that's not um, that's right. 
you know, maybe some organizations would like to think that they had the budgets to be able to do that. But prioritization is such an important thing about what it is that we're doing. To that point a little bit, maybe along on the lines of compliance, I wonder what, what compliance standards are you all at Tenacity seeing asked for and utilized in the cloud regularly that, you know, if some, somebody in the audience wanted to go brush up on some of those and see kind of how they compare and how they stack up, what would those be that you all see with regularity people asking about and aligning to? Yeah, it, it depends on the type of organization. So, you know, one, if it's publicly traded, you always got the, you know, they're going to end up a SOC 2 and PCI immediately. They're, they're doing that. Um, if they have any sensitive data requirements, they're often asking after um, uh, 800-171. Um, you know, and they, if they're, you know, moving towards uh, a much higher best practice standard, they'll ask about 853, right? NIST 853. Uh, and of course, ISO 27001 is is there uh, as well. Um, you know, we, and we've supported a number of, of other ones uh, from, you know, uh, HIPAA, uh, uh, helping people with, with HIPAA or CIS as a, as a baseline standard for uh, what they need to do in their environments and also supporting GDPR. Um, but, you know, what, what's unique, um, what you'll find different in, in a tool like ours that's, that's not in the industry is we actually allow navigation of the compliance framework via the framework itself. So sitting down with an auditor, sitting down with a compliance manager, it's actually from a perspective that they can understand it and they can understand why the checks apply to uh, the specific controls and control framework. Um, and we found that, you know, feedback from our customers, that's that's what they wanted. They actually, it's, it's, um, it's a tremendous burden to go through the audit and provide evidence. But if you can actually just sit down with someone and navigate through it and show every control, here's the test we're doing and how we're passing and here's the evidence for it, it's just a tremendously easier path. Yeah, it's, it's a, a whole lot easier to do that self-attestation when you can run a tool and it tells you all of that instead of having to go in and come up with manual validations of each of the controls and then go through and manually validate them yourself, put them in a spreadsheet, hand them to the auditor and the auditor asks the question about it and you're now six months into the process of validating these controls and your team goes, uh, yes. I know we validated that, but we didn't document it well and I don't remember how we did it. And then the thing just starts coming apart at the seams, right? I, you know, I use the analogy of when you're when you're shopping for a new home or an apartment and everything looks great and you love it until you find that first blemish and then you see everything wrong with the place and you're all of a sudden turned off. I find that, um, you know, appropriately so, um, IT and security auditors, if things are simple and it looks like you have your act together and you obviously do, then your process is a lot easier. But the start, the second you start showing some of your blemishes, then they have an obligation to start poking on some of those things, right? <laughs> They do. And listen, there's, there's a cost aspect to this too. You know, uh, having been in security and compliance for, for 20 years in these highly regulated environments, we're very aware of the costs of actually having the assessor in there. And remember, it's $2,000 a day. If you can shorten, you know, 14 days down to two or three days, that's, that's a tremendous benefit to the organization. And especially for, especially for mid-sized organizations. Mm -hmm. I mean, they don't have the deep pockets of the fortune 10 or the fortune 500. Right. So, you know, getting, uh, you know, prepared, having the right tools and the right reporting in place to actually be able to minimize that time on site is, is critical. Yeah, it's another interesting one too, right? You talk about small to medium enterprise, and that's been the sum total of my career has been serving those sizes of organizations. And, you know, it's mm -hmm. 
unfortunately all too common to look at some of these frameworks and when self-attestations are being done to have people look at it that know, you know, well, I'm not questioning their integrity or their knowledge, but yeah, we do that. We do that. We do that. Yeah. And, and it just turns out to be a checklist, right? And you're not validating anything to your point about right. small to medium enterprises. Some of these compliance frameworks are massive. And if you're really going in and validating the, that these controls are in place and are working as you expect, which you should be, it's an amazing amount of time to your point about cost savings, right? So I, I knew in my career, I deployed a number of solutions to help alleviate that burden because it is an awful lot of work to go in and manually validate all of these controls that you put in place. But not doing that isn't an alternative either because you've got configuration drift, you've got firmware updates that all of a sudden, uh, I had an edge device, I won't say who it was with, but there was a, a major OS update and all of a sudden the default credentials were available from the public internet. And had we not been looking for that, we never would have known. But I promise you an adversary absolutely goes rattling that door first. Default credentials yes. are the best. Um, so it is yes. very hard. So any tools that you can put into the stack and in place to help you automate that, not only does it keep the auditor out it makes the auditor's time in the building less. It lessens the amount of workload on the team actually validating all of those controls so they can move on to other things or the team can run a little more efficiently. Yes. I wonder as we start, you know, tipping into now that 2022, hard to believe, is almost half over, security misconfigurations continue to be, a, a, you know, a big... Uh, a big ugly monster that rears its head into the cloud space. What what do you think we're going to see uh, in the world of cloud security and kind of what's to come in the next you know next half of the year and on into 2023? What what should listeners and viewers be concerned about and watching? Well, I think you're going to see this trend of renewed focus in foundational or fundamental security. I, I think for probably the past four years, um, in, in certainly. You know, I think that that COVID or the pandemic uh, exacerbated this issue, but there's been an extreme focus on you know detecting detect and response. And there's even I've even seen writers in the industry make the argument that you know cybersecurity industry in some corners has actually thrown up their hands on the whole like secure everything. Um, and so I think you're going to see this renewed focus on the workload and on protecting the workload. Number one. Two is I think you're going to see a focus on the concept of guardrails uh, in environments because now you can have guardrails. Now, now the infrastructure is code. Now I can write code to say, well, don't allow this to happen. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think you're going to see growth in, in that as well. Um, and, and I think some of the overall trends that we have seen where cybersecurity has become a board topic um, they're going to demand uh, board level insight, which is not operational. It's not at a technical level. It's at a very high level. And it has to do with strategy and it has to do with cost and it has to do with understanding relative scoring. How are they doing compared to their peers? And I think you're going to see that mature and evolve very much in the same way that, that we have credit scores by which people judge our credit worthiness. I think you're going to see the development uh, of those mechanisms, especially with what's happening inside of uh, cybersecurity insurance. If, if 
uh, viewers are not aware, it's becoming very difficult to to get a policy reasonably. And so if you're if you're a smaller mid-sized business, especially, it can be extremely difficult to, to get a policy that's worth anything. Um, and so I think you're going to see some of these these changes um, where cybersecurity is elevated to a, a very high business level, very strategic level. I've definitely been around long enough to have seen some of the initial uh, rounds of cybersecurity policies that were seemingly written to um, be full of exclusions after the fact, particularly for that small to medium business space, right? But that that sword cuts both ways. Um, If I were the insurer, I wouldn't want to be insuring you if you're not doing the basic block and tackle that's largely agreed upon in this space as well. So... I, I do. I think you're right. It's getting much more and more interesting to secure cybersecurity insurance. And with, you know, as you were alluding to, some of the coming SEC rule changes that seem almost imminent and getting representation for cybersecurity at the board level, it was not too many years ago, honestly, but before Cybers Oxley or SOX was around, not SOC, SOX. From a financial controls perspective, and, you know, I think it's easy for us to forget as, as a business community that that was not that long ago when you may not have had representation on the board that really understood financial controls in an organization. So I think we're on an interesting trajectory to see something similar happening with cybersecurity, um, understandably a, a decade or so uh, behind some of those controls. That'll be a, an interesting one to watch to see how that one how that one plays out, in my opinion, and what the ultimate downstream impacts of some of those changes are. Ho- hopefully, all positive. Um, I guess one last Agreed. question I have yeah. for you before we wrap today, mm-hmm. Nick. Um, if if there was any single point of advice for an organization that's either made the move to the cloud, making the move to cloud, or trying to get their hands around their cloud infrastructure, um, what would it be? What can they do to I- improve their posture and be in a better place? Um, having listened to the podcast today than they were before. Well, one is tackle it early. I mean, it's, it's so hard once you're, you know, once your infrastructure is mass, massive and sprawling, it's, it's really hard to go clean up. Uh, it's so much easier and take this from, you know, 20 some years experience of, of building, you know, massive infrastructures and rapid growth companies, uh, getting the build right um, early on, just saves so much time. There's going to be mistakes. There's going to be gaps that, that appear later on, but not having to go back and clean up a massive amount of technical debt is really important. So, you know, getting your arms around it early, I would say is important. If you're already there, um, you know, at least getting insight and prioritizing those things uh, that, um, you know, prioritizing those things that uh, are going to be critical uh, to your organization. And, it, and it, this may sound, uh, uh, you know, odd coming from the cybersecurity perspective. Sometimes that's actually getting your arms around the financial piece first because it reduces your attack surface. And then you go attack actually the, the really high vulnerabilities because otherwise you get a lot of times slogged when you can actually eliminate 30 or 40% of your environment, get it down to a manageable size and now start attacking those, those really high priority items. It's amazing how fast you can move once you kind of make that decision. What's my strategy? Here's how I'm going to go knock it down and we start making those changes. So really it's it's just get started um the final piece i would say is you know there's a skills shortage out there um don't be afraid to go and get some junior or early career talent because if you have the right tools to be able to use those tools the tools give them guidance as to what they need to do but 
it's better to have an army who's doing that analysis and helping you get to the right place than not to have anyone or waiting for that perfect candidate, which is not going to come along, frankly, and they're very expensive when they do. Um, but, you know, really to, to help yourself get going, because like I said, there's a lot of open jobs in the industry right now. That's great. So we've, yeah, I think we've come full circle, hopefully given everybody a little bit of a, you know, kind of a state of affairs here with cloud and, and both its pros and cons and that, uh, you know, it is, it's good to see somebody from the inside say that there really is hope. Um, we have the opportunity to have better visibility than we've ever had before as an industry. We just have to take the good with the bad with that and grab the proverbial bull by the horns and, and do what we can to, to make sure we have that visibility and that we're doing something with it. Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you on. Um, hopefully, we'll we'll get you back around again later, and we'll continue down the path of cloud security. I know it's a it's a topic that in six months will likely look very different than it does today. <laughs> always, always changing. Thanks so much, Will. Appreciate you having me on the show. Thanks, Nick. Cybrary, the premier cybersecurity skill development platform, is empowering individuals and teams to secure the future of technology. See why 3 million people have already signed up when you visit www.cybrary.it.